The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. This is the Eco Right Speaks, your podcast produced by RepublicEN.org. I'm Chelsea Henderson, your host. I hope you had a safe and restful Thanksgiving and that you ate a lot of pie. You asked for it, listeners, and today we are answering. You requested that we bring a climate scientist on the podcast, and so I'm very pleased to share with you my and Bob Inglis's joint conversation with Carrie Emanuel, an atmospheric scientist from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Carrie is the author of the book, What You Know About Climate Change, which you should definitely purchase, and we will drop a link in the show notes. He's also one of the top experts on hurricanes and what factors intensify them. He will demystify the grant-making process and talk about the role skepticism plays in science as a whole. But first, you know what time it is. Whose line is it anyway? I asked my teammates who said the following. I think there have been a lot of Republicans in the closet on climate. Here's how they responded. Wen Lee. The Mike Braun. Price Atkinson. Yeah, with your hint, Chelsea, I'm going to say that was Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Bob Inglis. I'm wondering if that's Senator Sheldon Whitehouse who said, I think there have been a lot of Republicans in the closet on the climate. And Alex Bosmoski. Senator Braun for the win. Listeners, if you were playing along and you guessed Indiana Senator Mike Braun, you are right. Gold star for you. Stay tuned for our first episode of season two airing in January when Senator Braun is going to be a guest on the show. And now my conversation with Bob Inglis and Carrie Emanuel. Welcome back, listeners. So as you requested... I have with us today a very special guest, Carrie Emanuel from MIT, a climate scientist, which is one thing that readers had written in, or listeners, sorry, not readers, had written in and asked us to have on the show, and also joining the conversation, our executive director, Bob Inglis. So welcome, gentlemen, to the show. Thank you. Great to, great to be with you. So, Carrie, one thing I wanted to start off with um, is that it seems right now that we're in this real weird situation where science is divisive. And on the climate science side, while some of the polling and the surveys are looking better, you don't have as much um, disputation of climate science. So hopefully that's partly the job that we're doing and that others are doing to um, bring people around. It's very interesting to me to see that the population of people who are rejecting COVID as a real threat are often the same people who reject climate science. So do you have any thoughts on why that might be the case? Well, I think it's um, another episode in a long history of episodes uh, where groups of people decide they don't like what science is telling them. So they figure out how to reject the science. I'm I'm more optimistic in some ways about climate than about COVID in that respect. First of all, we have a little bit longer <laughs> to deal with climate than with COVID. 
And secondly, and this is actually something Bob taught me years ago, is that if you can get people to sign on to the solutions to the problem, um, then it doesn't matter so much whether they actually agree with your assessment of the problem. It would be like, and I mean, it'd be almost impossible to, to say to somebody who refused to wear a mask because of COVID, look, uh, you should do, you should wear the mask anyway, whether their COVID is real or not. That argument doesn't make a lot of sense. On the other hand, there are a lot of reasons why we ought to be transitioning to a different kind of energy generation um, that may not have much to do with climate change. Even for us, that's even though that's the main reason, uh, there's still plenty of good reasons to do that. And one that I often emphasize is that, you know, we are undergoing this transition to green energy globally, whether we like it or not, it's happening. And why should the United States sit on the sidelines when it's a $7 trillion annual potential market? From just an economic point of view, we really ought to be participating in that transition. No, absolutely. I think that um, in our last episode, we talked about climate change being it's an environmental issue. It's an economic issue. It's a transportation issue. It's a public health issue. It's so much more than just one thing. And all of the solutions that you just mentioned, which were more on the clean energy side, will have implications for all of those others. So it will be economically in our best interest and from a public health perspective in our best interest to solve. And um, Bob, I know that you um, had done, at least a couple of years ago, a foreword to Carrie's book on climate change, which, oh, Bob, tell Carrie what we did with his book. Oh, yes. You know, we, we had this uh, uh, kids program, uh, you know, uh, youth ambassadors, um, county youth chairs. Let me get their name right. Uh, county youth chairs. And so um, we uh, gave them the opportunity to get extra points by reading the book and taking a test on the book, I will tell you, because when Lee, who uh, ran that program for us, she checks you out about whether you read the book or not. So uh, you had to pass the test as one of the county youth chairs uh, in order to get credit. So uh, it's pretty, it's, it's really great because the kids did take to it. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting, Carrie, what I wrote in the book, I've got it in my hand, you know, what we know about climate, climate change. And I think it's now you've got a, a super duper new ways online and everything. And it's really, really nifty. Um, I wrote in the foreword some words that maybe some people would find a little bit over the top, but I really wrote them immediately after reading it. I use words like beautifully written, stunning review of the science, marvelous to get a glimpse of what we've come to know through the brilliant work of scientists like Gary Emanuel. I really think that's what it is. For me, reading the book was a celebration of what we've come to know. And of course, then I go on in that forward to say that you admit that there's a lot more we don't know yet. Um, um, but I think it's just interesting to, that some people, picking up what Chelsea was just saying, really are, are threatened maybe by science. Others see it, and even though I'm not a scientist and uh, you know, would have struggled with the math uh, that you, you have to do, uh, you know, I can celebrate what you know, because it's just marvelous, really, what, to find out things about the creation and how it works, which to me is what science is all about. Is that, I mean, I, 
it's sort of, uh, but I, I think I might have embarrassed you by being a little bit glowing there. Um. <laughs> uh, Bob, I'll take it. <laughs> you can't see him, but he's blushing. Especially <laughs> coming from you, because, you know, it's so important that you wrote those words, because nobody could accuse you of this being some kind of political uh that you're making, because if it were purely uh, decided based upon your political party, you would have said something quite different. But you were, I think, I think there was honest and heartfelt, and I, I very much appreciate it. And, and what, but yeah. what do you think it is that some people, some people say, hey, great, this science, it's incredible. You know, for example, on COVID, we're headed toward a vaccination within a year. I think what measles took 10 years and polio took 20 years or something like that. The fastest one was four years. I think that might have been measles. The fastest vaccine yeah. to market I read was four years. Yeah. yeah. So it's remarkable, this achievement, right? And so it's what a celebration of what we know, right? Even, even, even with the humility of knowing that we don't know a lot still, but... Um, is that how you approach it as a scientist? I mean, do you? Uh, it, it's really pretty remarkable what we know. Well, it is. And I think, you know, most scientists are really just motivated by an intense desire to understand how nature works. And Einstein, I think, said something along the lines of the most mysterious aspect of science is that we can begin to understand it. Um, and I think we all feel that way. It's not preordained that the universe would, or even small parts of it would be comprehensible to a human being. And the fact that we've been able to understand some things about it is, is really amazing. And yes, I mean, the folks who are working heroically on these vaccines, they're really, they're real heroes. And I hope that people um, recognize that, especially once the vaccine is out and is putting an end to the pandemic, uh, I hope those those folks get um, a little credit. And, and you know, we, we have this uh, effort underway to sort of label climate scientists with some of that heroism uh, under sort of the moniker, they wear a different mask, but they're diagnosing our condition, offering treatments, and they really care about about us. In other words, that's what we need to reposition climate scientists as not the people that are trying to stop us from doing something we otherwise enjoy doing, but rather people trying to help us really diagnose our condition, give us a treatment, tell us how we can survive, right? I mean, that's sort of the same thing that the, uh, the, the healthcare professionals are doing for us. Of course, <laughs> I did be put in that same pool. But yeah, I hope that I hope people understand that scientists are working mostly just out of a desire to satisfy their curiosity, but also out of a genuine desire to, to help other people. I mean, in various different proportions, uh, they're not out for themselves. If they were out for themselves, there are other professions that are more lucrative, let's put it that way. So um, one of the things that I take great delight in doing my work is with the, with the other scientists I interact with. You know, it's a really wonderful profession from that standpoint. Some of my very best friends are also my colleagues. And scientists are just, you know, obviously they're human beings and they have their virtues and their flaws. But as a whole, they're really nice people to interact with. 
Well, you kind of set yourself up for the qu- a question I wanted to figure out how to weave in. And that is that, you know, when we, li- if you were to listen to what some of the disputers say, they will accuse you and your colleagues of, you know, the, the scientists that are on the take with these big grants that they get. And of course, Bob and I know that's ridiculous because as you said, you would be in a different career if you were in this for um, something that was, you know, if you were driven by, by fortune and fame. So I thought maybe you could just take in kind of layman's terms a second to describe what that grant process is like for a scientist that is trying to um, receive some sort of funding for a thesis or a project that they are eager to, are curious about, or they want to satisfy their curiosity about. Yeah. So I think that's a very good question because it's not something a lot of people know very much about. Why should they? It's sort of peculiar to the, but they, they perhaps should know because they're footing the bill, right? A lot of it is taxpayer-funded research. They they certainly have a right to know. Uh, whether they have a desire to know is another question. But let me say this, that the, the monies that um, are acquired from federal and other grants are used uh, for all kinds of different things. Um, in my case, mostly to support graduate students. And graduate students uh, have a stipend. Um, they have to live, right? And a lot of what goes into my federal grants is to support graduate students. In other professions, particularly ones that are heavy with laboratory work, it can go to uh, buying laboratory equipment. Um, I do a certain amount of field work, and as many scientists do, and one has to pay for equipment one uses in the field, the time one is in the field, uh, I fly airplanes into hurricanes, for example, um, and these are government-owned airplanes, but it costs a certain amount to run them, and ditto uh, oceanographic vessels. So that's where the taxpayer's money is really flowing. Does it flow into our pockets? By and large, no. Now, sometimes uh, at universities, uh, for example, my university uh, pays me a nine-month salary, and and my colleagues and we uh, can raise some of our summer salary also uh, from the research grants. The same salary is managed by the same university, but it's paid through the grant. And then you're expected to work absolutely full time on that grant as opposed to teaching, going to faculty meetings, that sort of thing. And you really you're really being paid by the taxpayer to do your research exclusively that. And that's what you do. Thank you. I think that's a really great way to just let people know that there is a lot involved in the science. You're not just making this up in, at your desk or in your office there. It, it takes time. It takes human power. It takes equipment, travel, and especially for the kind of work that you're doing, you're not just crunching numbers on your computer, you're going out and you're looking at places that have been impacted and you're looking at ice cores, I presume. I presume. I don't know. I'm not, I, I have never been on um, on any trip like I know Bob has taken to Greenland and in our, have you gone to the Antarctic, Bob, or just to Greenland? Yeah. Okay. Antarctica, yes. Twice, actually. Um, but I also think that one interesting thing, when I first started working with Bob and the gang at Republic EN, I used the term climate skeptic. And I think it was Bob who who drove that out of me because, in his words, skepticism is part of science. 
right? You're, you're approaching a problem. You're, you're looking at your issue with, not with an outcome in mind, right? And you never, I would presume that as a scientist that you, you want to make sure you've covered all the angles because you don't want in peer review someone to come over and say, ah, you missed this, that you're going to kind of go through as many um, rounds or, or however, however science works. So I just thought that maybe you could talk about how skepticism plays into the work that, you, that science at large, um, how that works. Uh, yes, I think it's an excellent question, and I'm glad you asked it. Skepticism is absolutely central to science. It, it works because we're all skeptics in degree. And uh, there may be occasionally uh, scientists who become dogmatic or they get attached to a theory or some idea, or it may happen to most scientists at some point in their careers. But uh, science works as a profession because we correct each other. You know, if you publish something that's significant, that's significant either intellectually from a scientific standpoint or societally significant, it's going to be scrutinized by a lot of other people. And a, a quick way for a young scientist to make his or her mark in the field is to overturn some piece of the current scientific canon, right? To say, no, this isn't right. Uh, and particularly if they can go on to suggest what might be right in its place. So they're always doing that, right? You really, uh, there might be papers that are published in science, uh, in scientific journals even years ago that are wrong and haven't been corrected, but that's probably because they turn out to be completely insignificant. Nobody really cares about it anymore. Uh, and sometimes things that seem insignificant at first when you do them turn out to be earth-shaking later on. So one never knows. Um, but that's the nice thing about science is that as a whole, it's self-correcting. The, the human beings that are scientists are flawed, just like any other human being. But the profession as a whole tends to be self-correcting. So I thought we could take so a second to talk about hurricanes, because I do think that this is an issue, you know, so many Americans live in a zone where they may experience either the hurricane itself or the tropical storm afterwards. And I had read recently, and I think this bore out in the 2020 hurricane season, which seemed horribly long, um, even living in the mid-Atlantic where I am, but um, that these storms are the tendency, at least for this year, has been that they're getting stuck inland and they're dropping a bunch of water and wind on communities that aren't otherwise sort of built up or prepared to deal with a major storm like that. Is that the kind of thing that as a climate scientist you would look at and say, oh, we need to study this to figure out if this really is just a one-off happening this year or whether there's a trend going? Yeah, well, it's an excellent question. And the first thing I'd like to get across is based upon the history of hurricanes, and that is that almost all the damage they occur that occurs uh, in hurricanes um, and loss of life and injury is actually not by wind, it's by water. So although maybe the less uh, photogenic aspect of the storm, it's the storm forecasters and scientists worry about from a societal standpoint. When it comes to trying to understand what's happening to storms in the future, we throw everything we have at it, which includes just trying to see trends in data, which is very hard, particularly since hurricanes are rare. 
but also just to understand it from a basic physical standpoint. Uh, and the basic physics is much harder to get across to a non-scientist than pointing to a time series of data and saying, look, there's a trend there. But it's just as important, maybe even more important in some cases, and also models. So they're all kinds of different tools. So every once in a while, the scientists who work on hurricanes and their connection to climate get together, and that just happened over the last two years. And we just published a pair of articles in a respected scientific journal, which involved quite a few authors who got together and agreed on what we think we understand and also agreed on what we disagree about, right? Uh, so we're very open and honest about the things we don't feel we have a, have a grip on. The things we do have a grip on, we've had a grip on for some time, is that um, as you warm the climate, uh, the storms tend to become more intense. And that's a basic aspect of their physics and was predicted 32 years ago that this would happen. And we're beginning to see it in the data. By intense, I mean stronger winds. But more importantly, because of the water thing uh, that I just talked about, um, a given storm will produce, generally speaking, more rain. First of all, because there's a lot more water in warmer air than in colder air. It goes up very steeply. So it's the same storm, exact storm, will produce more rain in a warmer climate. But there are other factors, one which you mentioned, that these storms in some cases will be slowing down. We don't see that universally globally. We tend to see that in the subtropics, which unfortunately includes, say, the northern Gulf of Mexico, the uh, southern part of the mid-Atlantic uh, seaboard of the U.S., but around the world also in the subtropics. We see it a little bit in the data, but the models are pretty unequivocal about that slowing down. And the other thing that um, we're unfortunately confident of is sea levels going up. The measurements are completely unequivocal about that. So as the, everybody's on board, the sea level's going up. That means that when you have a hurricane, one of the most destructive aspects is something we call the storm surge, which is the same thing as a tsunami. It's exactly the same thing, except it was created by wind rather than by shaking seafloor. But once it's going, it's the same thing, and it, and it has a terrible uh, habit of, of uh, hitting land in the middle of a hurricane. And uh, it's not usually survivable. It's very bad. And simply because it's riding on top of an elevated sea level, it's going to go further inland, which is what happened in Hurricane Sandy, for example. Hurricane Sandy, the same storm probably wouldn't have flooded Manhattan if it had occurred in, in 1917 as opposed to 2017 because sea level was so much lower back then. Also, the storms tend to get a little bit bigger and, and be stronger, and that also uh, that also enhances the storm surge. So we're really worried about that increasing risk of those kinds of water events, if you want to think of them that way. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Beginning of the show, you talked about the role that solutions play in the greater climate debate. And Bob told me earlier that you are very bullish on nuclear energy being part of the transition toward a low to zero carbon economy. And so, one thing that I always think about with nuclear is obviously we have to do something with the waste. 
do you yes. have thoughts on on how we approach that element of the debate? Because I don't think there's any argument that we do need a we need a source that is not intermittent. Um, and we need something that can power us the way we're used to being powered, right? If I think about all of the electronics that we all have, everyone in my house has a laptop and a phone and a computer, and plus we're home all the time now, so lights are on all the time and AC and all of that. So you need something that is reliable, and so nuclear does seem like it is a really good option, but I also hear the argument about what to do with the waste. And we know that Nevada, there's been a long time dispute over Yucca Mountain. And I think in South Carolina, Bob, you guys have the, um, is it Savannah? What's the name of the site? Savannah Riverside, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. they always Which, end up controversial. So how do we get beyond that and find a way to embrace this? not low energy, uh, zero carbon form of energy. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> well, let me start off by saying something that I've sort of noticed over the years, that nuclear engineers are really, really gifted people that work very, very hard and are good at what they do. But they're terrible marketers. <laughs> they really are. And don't we Otherwise, have fewer we... of them than we used to? Wasn't that part of the... Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, in the United States, we do, um, and but you know the we would we would never have even used the word nuclear because people associate it with bombs, and a nuclear power plant cannot go off like a bomb, and so they just haven't been very good at marketing themselves. If they were, everybody would realize it's the safest, cleanest energy we have in the whole planet, bar none. Competitive in safety per kilowatt hour generated with solar and wind, certainly, and safer than hydro by, uh, by a good margin, and much, much safer than fossil fuels. Um, but nothing is free of risk, nothing. No source of energy is free. Even solar and wind kill people, uh, fortunately not very many. Um, so the, the waste issue is a serious issue, but it is not considered among experts, by which I mean nuclear experts, to be a very big technical issue. It's a very big political issue. So let me try to put things in perspective. If, you, if you're an average American in terms of your energy consumption and you derived all of your energy through your whole lifespan from nuclear power, if that were the case, all the waste you would personally be responsible for would fit in a Coca-Cola can. Okay, So the volume of waste is really, really, really small. Now, if you got it all from coal, you're talking about many, many railroad trains full of coal that you would be responsible for, coal waste. Uh, the, the, the way to deal with it, uh, one way to deal with it, is to bury it deep underground in a very geologically stable place. Like the whole of Canadian Shield is rock that nature hasn't fooled around with for literally billions of years. You know, no earthquakes, no, no nothing. Um, so the Europeans, uh, Swedes and the French, for example, uh, rely pretty heavily on nuclear power. That They're building a big repository for that waste in Finland. And there's no big brouhaha about it. It's just going as planned. And there really won't be any safety issues with that. So technically, it's not a big problem. Politically, it's a big problem, as as I'm sure Bob knows, and most people who deal with these things know. It's it's very hard to convince people that it's safe. 
the tragedy in my talking, mind. I'm thinking that all these problems seem to be unique to the United States, right? The, the, politi- the political divide on nuclear, the political divide on climate change, on COVID science, that this is something that is unique to us here, perhaps. Not quite. Uh, Chelsea, because, for example, uh, the German Green Party was so violently opposed to nuclear power that they basically shut down the whole of the German nuclear power program. And the results of that have not been great. They were miraculously and commendably able to ramp up their renewables to about 40 percent of their power generation. But they kind of hit a wall, as was predicted by energy experts when they got there, because uh, the the energy market in Europe is now so volatile on a daily basis. You know, in the uh, in the middle of a windy, sunny day, Germany doesn't know what to do all with all its energy, and 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 actually, actually, literally pays its neighbors to take it from them. Whereas in the calm night, they're drawing huge amounts of energy from their neighbors to the point where the neighbors say, "You can't go on like this. You can't increase the volatility anymore." So it's not just the U.S., but I would point out that um, to the extent that nuclear is going to be an important part of our transition to green energy, which I'm almost certain it will be, that market is being captured clearly by Russia and China and maybe a little bit by South Korea. They're going ahead and, and innovating like crazy on nuclear power. They're pushing ahead. They're building the old-style nuclear power plants, so-called light water reactors, for export. Um, China signed recently a big contract with Argentina to build nuclear power plants there. So I always tell my environmentalist friends, you know, we don't actually get to choose whether the world goes nuclear, but we could, you know, we could make sure that it was Western nuclear, U.S., you know, French, whatever, as opposed to the same folks who brought us Chernobyl. So, you know, worried about nuclear power, maybe the best thing to do is to support a renaissance of nuclear power in the United States. I mean, it's the same with where do we get our our solar arrays from? Where do we buy our wind turbines from? You know, these are opportunities for manufacturing in the United States. Yeah, they are. They're big opportunities, yeah. And, you know, Carrie, I guess it's it's uh, speaking of marketing. The radiologist did a better job, right, of of describing all this to us. They cat scans and such, right? We were talking they, they we submit to those, but we're not so interested in the nuclear waste stuff. Right. But it's some, there's some uh, similarities, I suppose. It's just they're better marketing uh, of it. Right. Uh, well, yes, although they, you know, they started off badly. So when. A lot of people listening to this will have had, or at least no one's had, an MRI, right? And the MRI started out its life as a as a, a medical device, uh, as a uh, an nMRI, which is what it really is. It's a nuclear magnetic resonance imaging. Now it's a lot of, of mouthful. It has nothing to do with uh, radiation, nuclear radiation. Um, uh, but because it was called that, you couldn't get anybody to do it. They wouldn't go in the machine to have themselves diagnosed because it was a nuke, right? So they were very clever. They just dropped the N-word. There's no more nuclear. I mean, and it became an MR. They're yeah. terrible either so, way. I probably had like five of them. But yeah, I could see how that would be bad marketing. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, but they they solved it by dropping that word, and um, we haven't dropped it in the other case. So I think people really uh, ought to understand this energy landscape. It's a very, very interesting problem. How do we go about uh, continuing to enjoy relatively inexpensive power, uh, continue to enjoy being a producer of power for export, right? and solve this climate problem. This is a big challenge. And when you consider that there are something like 900 million people on the planet that don't have any electricity, you'll have to check that number. I'm operating from memory, but a lot of people. Uh, and that, that they probably, they certainly want electricity and probably get it. If they get it from fossil fuels, we can just kiss the climate goodbye pretty much. But if we can invent a, a clean source of energy to sell to them that will make sense economically for them and allow them to grow and lift themselves out of poverty, who doesn't want that, then we will also do well financially. So I think we really have to understand that there's a big economic opportunity to developing uh, clean energy and not cling. We don't want to be the last people who are making horseshoes after the invention of the car, right? Yeah. I feel like that is That's definitely sure. a Bobism. You talk about the <laughs> horse and is it the horse and buggy analogy that you have? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, Carrie, uh, Chelsea likes to bring out the personality and the preferences of our guests on this show. And I remember you telling me one time we were talking about weather, and it was just interesting. I remember you telling me that. I'd maybe just been to Southern California or something. I told you that it was hard to speak. I, I, speaking of the University of California, UCLA um, Law School. And I said, I asked the students, how do you study here? It's 72 and blue sky out there. And they said very nonchalantly, oh, it's that way every day. And uh, you, told, you, you told me that you had the experience of living in California, in Southern California, I think it was. And you preferred... Uh, Tell is have I got that right? You, you preferred the weather elsewhere. I did. I mean, I, having taken up residence when I was 23 years old in uh, Los Angeles, uh, I, you know, I started to react badly to the fact that it hadn't rained in three or four weeks, and uh, uh. <laughs> somebody showed me uh, a, a little essay written by the German poet Goethe, in which he's famous for having said, there's nothing harder to bear than a long succession of fair days. And I realized, as odd as that sounds, it was true. Yes, I like the weather. Yeah, and so so you, you find uh, uh, Cambridge much nicer, or much more fun, because you get uh, nor'easters and things like that, right? Yeah, but there are other fun things about Cambridge, too. But yes, I like the weather. And we have a lot of weather in New England. It has to be yes. said. Well, that's yes, for a, guy that, for, a guy, for a guy who studies hurricanes, you really, you got you to gotta see, see some of the action every once in a while, right? You got to see this, these uh, climate system or these, these uh, weather systems coming through. It makes, it, makes uh, life interesting. It does. I, I try to keep that perspective when it's raining. Uh, I'll call it the Carrie Emanuel perspective. <laughs> Next time it's the rain is blowing and uh, you know it's cold or something, I'll think, well, this is really pretty exciting, actually. No, I was just thinking that too, in the context of our all the quarantining and staying at home, that I have found that you know we've had these long stretches of rainy days, and it's hard because you don't really want to go out for a walk or leave your house. But on the nice days. 
everyone's out and where my office is angled, I can see the street and I live on a, in a very hilly town, but on a very flat street. So everyone walks by my house because it's one of the areas where you can walk without encountering a hill. And I think that I appreciate the, those sunny days because I have the contrast of the days that I can't get out. I can't take a walk. I can't, you know, leave the walls of my house. So I appreciate the weather right now for sure. Well, Carrie, it has been so great to have you on this show and to hear a little bit, get a little bit behind the curtain and what you do. And I'm going to definitely encourage our listeners, if they haven't already, to get a copy of your book, What We Know About Climate Change, and you're constantly updating new editions. And we'll put a link in our show notes for sure. And we'll look up that stat on the number of people without electricity as well and put those in our show notes. And you too. It's been delightful speaking with you. Thanks. And that's a wrap, listeners. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with MIT professor Carrie Emanuel and our own executive director, Bob Inglis. I'm missing my sidekick, Price Atkinson, who usually does this wrap-up segment with me, but he has other important work to get caught up on, and you will hear his voice next week. Everyone here at RepublicEN.org hopes that you had a safe and lovely Thanksgiving. I have to admit, I'm a tad disappointed that none of you shared a dessert recipe with me. I ended up having to go with a classic apple pie. I also made a brown sugar bread pudding with a vanilla bourbon sauce that was quite tasty. And now I'm eager to see if you'll follow through with perhaps your favorite Christmas cookie recipes now that we are heading into December best month of all because because it is my birthday month. Speaking of December, next week, we are bringing you my conversation with Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a passionate advocate for bipartisan climate action. While he hails from the Democratic side of the aisle, Senator Whitehouse is a member who understands the benefit of bipartisanship, and he strives to make progress with his Republican colleagues. You can tune in on December 8th to catch that episode, or even better, you can subscribe at the, to the EcoRight Speaks on your favorite podcast platform, and then you don't have to worry about missing a single episode. A quick shout out before I let you go to our newest members of the EcoRight community, Rebecca C. in California, Anthony K. in Massachusetts, John L. in Texas, Chris E. in North Carolina, Madeline B. in Colorado. We're so happy to have you as part of the RepublicEN.org team. That's it for me. Stay safe, and I'll see you on December 8th. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.